Morning, Dr. Boyle. Thank you. Welcome. Pediatric Grand Rounds for October 7th, 2015 into October. And I had the reminders for next week. We have an old friend, actually John Modlin, will be presenting Pediatric Grand Rounds at 8 a.m. And hopefully you have signed up to be a hero in 11 days for the 10th Chad Hero here on the green. Um, for our um, up to some good note this morning, I have a somewhat old note now, a written, handwritten letter that came to Dr. Weinstein regarding our Dr. Mark Smith in ENT. He is responsible for saving our daughter's life. She was diagnosed with B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma of the throat, and Dr. Smith removed part of the tumor enough for her to breathe. His professionalism, kindness, and warm personality was a perfect match for her. Nine years later, she returned to Dr. Smith to have a minor clearing, cleaning out of the trach site. Dr. Smith has not changed a bit, except the hair. <laughs> the letter said that, not me. If you see Mark, don't blame me, except the hair. He is a fantastic doctor and a top-notch human being. Dr. Smith phones to check in on her well-being after her appointment. I shared with Dr. Smith that he gets an A-plus, and that would be writing to you to inform you that you have a great doctor. We feel extremely blessed. Thank you. And if he's up for a raise or a promotion, he gets our vote. <laughs> Seriously, he's a skilled doctor with excellent people skills, and, um, and we know Mark is, and, and he represents many of, many of you and many of us in the room. So I, he doesn't often join us here today, but it was just too good to pass up. We have another member of our faculty here uh, presenting Grand Rounds today, The Theory of Everything. It's a, it's a uh, provocative title, but Dr. Ar uh, Albert, Dan Albert, is Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics in the Dartmouth Institute in, in Rheumatology. He uh, received his BA at Columbia and MD degrees in New York University, so New York City, but went off to North Carolina to complete his residency and his RWJ, Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholarship before fellowships in rheumatology and immunology in San Diego at UCSD, as well as at Harvard Medical School and Dana-Farber in pharmacology. Starting his career at the University of Chicago, he moved to Philadelphia in 1997, where he rose to be professor of medicine and pediatrics, as well as clinical epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Pennsylvania. And we were luckily enough to recruit him almost 10 years ago to Dartmouth to um, lead our rheumatology program and also to lead, uh, not as a major reason, uh, participate in CDA, but also to lead Camp CHAD or Camp DH, which is for uh, children with uh, juvenile, rheumatolo rheumatolo uh, juvenile rheumatolo arthritis, JRI, which we know we're going to use called JIA, but rheumato rheumatoid conditions, and he's always looking for help. It's over in Vermont, so you might need a Vermont license, although there's opportunities to volunteer without using your license. and so. I don't know when we'll send the email call out as reminders, but uh, we'll give you a heads up uh, that you can participate in all this good stuff that Dan's going to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Keith. Um, I want to thank you all for the uh, privilege and honor of being able to t care for children. I'm not pediatric trained, but I've been doing this. Uh, for quite a while, starting at the University of Chicago and then at CHOP and now here. And I always find it the um, absolute highlight of my week, um, uh, especially 
uh, now that it's expanded to um, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And I really appreciate all the help that you give me and all the pediatric aspects that I um, may be a little shaky on. Um, the, uh, the children that we care for are um, very uh, um, <coughs> challenging, and I, um, and I sometimes need um, help from a whole variety of different people. And I'll be uh, talking about that as it comes about. Um, the, uh, the title of my talk is, um, is JIA um, and periodic fevers and, and innate immunity and the theory of everything. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm making a bit of a, a joke with regard to a very a current movie that is um, quite uh, in, engaging. Uh, but the, but I want to change um, some perspective on the nature of inflammatory disease, both in children and adults, um, by introducing some concepts that are really segue very nicely from JIA um, to some of the adult diseases and contrast them as well. Um, but since you've not heard a talk on JIA, I think it's important that I outline the types because they're quite different one to the other. They're probably different pathogenesis and they're clearly uh, different ma uh, manifestations. To some extent, different treatment, although you'd be surprised how, um, how uniform the treatment is across both adults and children. Um, and they, the role of some of the inflammatory mediators in them and the uh, um, and the similarity of at least one type, the systemic type, to these rare conditions that are um, now becoming so uh, interesting and topical and, and explored and exciting, the periodic fever syndromes, um, and how they uh, relate to a whole uh, class of immunologic um, theory uh, that is um, now becoming probably the most um, engaging part of the immune system for us. Let's see how this works. Okay, so the sequence of topics is oligo or posse JIA, the most common type, poly JIA that we see in a couple of different types, systemic JIA, then periodic fever syndromes, uh, and uh, the difference and similarities to the innate and adaptive immune system. And finally, um, how it relates to a variety of different conditions that you might think have nothing to do with anything that you do, um, that is uh, adult degenerative diseases. Okay, so this is an old slide. It basically tells you, pointer, is that a pointer? Yeah, uh, it basically tells you that um, there are a variety of different types of JIA, and we divide them into posse, poly, um, and systemic, and then they're subdivided according to different manifestations, um, even within the posse group. And then within the posse group, there are individuals that have spondyloarthropathies, there's a, a condition that used to be called C syndrome. I still like the, the word, the, the nomenclature. It's seronegative enthesopathy arthropathy syndrome. So these are kids with enthesitis only. 
Um, and they're probably one of the hardest groups to, um, to identify because they have a lot of pain and almost no physical findings and very little in the lab as well. Psoriatic arthritis in children is often in the absence of psoriasis. So, you know, you can just um, uh, be uh, aware that, um, that kids with dactylitis often have what we consider psoriatic arthritis. They may eventually get nail or skin changes, but they don't often have them at the onset. So those are subtypes of POSI. So POSI itself is a group of disorders, and poly is a group of disorders, and then systemic appears to be one disorder, one very uh, complicated disorder. And, but I'll go through some of the um, various subtypes. This is the typical POSI. This is the one. This is the most common form of JIA, and the most common form that you're likely to see. So this is a little girl who's got a big knee, um, and that knee is swollen, and she probably a limp on it, and she probably will tell you if she's uh, old enough um, that it hurts her, um, and um, she may cry if you um, if you try to manipulate it. Um, when she's younger, um, maybe a two-year-old, they don't tell you anything. They just limp. Um, and it's mostly knees, fortunately, because it's easy to see inflammatory disease in the knee. But sometimes it's elbows. Sometimes it's wrists. Uh, so those are a little harder, but not so hard, actually. The kids generally just hold them and protect the um, limb so it's not hard to figure out, uh, even if they're quite pudgy. Um, so, and they tend to be when they're two. Um, so they, they don't have a whole bunch in the lab. Um, they, the set rate might be a little bit elevated. Um, and um, the one thing that, you know, everybody drums into pay, to, to um, pediatricians is the positive ANA and how that increases their risk for uveitis. The uveitis is asymptomatic, so the kids have absolutely no symptoms most of the time. When it gets to be really bad and they have van keratopathy with calcium deposits, they'll have photophobia and they'll have um, some tearing. But, it, but that's not when you want to discover this. You want to discover it before then because it's really quite irreversible. And um, so we, we're very aware of this. And the little girls that are ANA positive are screened every three months. If you're ANA negative, it makes you at less risk, so you're screened every six months. And if you're a boy, you're screened less often as well. Um, but those are the kind of individuals that um, are uh, at greatest risk for this uh, band keratopathy um, type of uveitis. And the other big risk that they have is leg length deformity. So if, they, if, if they're not treated and treated adequately, the, the limb will grow abnormally. So it might grow a little bit too short or it might grow a little bit too long, but it won't grow normally. And the reason it grows too short is that there's premature closure of the epiphysis and the reason it goes too long is that there's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, blood flow to the limb and it actually increases the, the um, the uh, length of the femur usually. Um, so it can go either way. But in any case, to, if you stop the inflammation in the knee, then the leg length discrepancy won't happen. 
And so that's a very important um, attribute because later on in life, leg length discrepancies end up with a whole bunch of problems, scoliosis and osteoarthritis of the spine and so on. Um, fortunately, many of these children actually resolve completely and they do require treatment and I'm going to illustrate that with a case. Every case that I'm presenting here is a case from DH, from Chad, okay? So these are not hypothetical things. These are not random cases that I've acquired from Penn or from, from Chicago. They're right here and right now. Some of them are actually right now. Um, so this is a 20-month-old female. She has two weeks history of swollen knee. She walks with a limp. It's swollen. The x-ray shows a large effusion, but no fracture. Her sed rate is 48. She doesn't have Lyme disease. That is absolutely critical. There's so much Lyme disease, and it usually presents in children as knees. And, and you have to make the diagnosis because it's treated, obviously, totally differently. Um, and she was treated with naproxen, the standard treatment, which is 5 milligrams per kilogram BID. The kids hate the taste of it, but, you know, that's what it is. Um, okay, she had a partial response. She did have an eye exam, um, baseline eye exam. And then um, because she's, uh, you know, only 20 months, I really don't feel um, that it's so easy to get them uh, get aspirate or inject their knees um, in clinic at that age. Sometimes I'll do it. It depends on the kid. Um, but most of the time, this group, the real young ones, and the teenage boys tend to be really <laughs> terrible about needles. Um, and, and really, that's the truth. Um, so I, I, I aspirated her. I couldn't get any fluid out. And she, I injected her with a Ristospan, which is the longest-acting steroid. And she's completely asymptomatic and resolved. Um, so I'll follow her, because she may actually um, uh, have a, a, a recrudescence of it, but, but right now she's doing well and, um, and running around with no limp. Um, so here's a different oligo patient. Here's a 12-year-old boy who, felt, who had a bicycle accident and had a swollen knee, so he saw ortho for a whole long time before he... Um, uh, saw me. Um, but amongst the things they did was aspirate his knee because he had an effusion and it showed 23,000 white blood cells. That's way too much for any kind of accident. Um, so, um, so they were um, concerned that it was a form of inflammatory arthritis and they got a Lyme test. The Lyme test was 10 of 10 IgG bands and 0 of 3 IgM. In theory, um, Lyme disease has uh, IgM bands in uh, as an acute um, manifestation when you have arthritis. Um, the, there's, there's, the literature is a little bit unclear on this um, uh, in that um, the, the uh, infectious disease literature says it's always present that you have IgM bands, but there's some um, uh, ortho literature that says that it might not be so easy. So the so this boy got 28 days of doxycycline, didn't miss any doses, didn't get a single bit of a response. And I um, took him uh, to uh, pain-free, aspirated his knee for a Lyme PCR. Lyme PCRs are fairly sensitive, um, and, w and it was negative. And if you have no 
IgM bands and you're PCR negative, you probably don't have Lyme. I can't be 100% sure of that, but that's the conventional wisdom. Um, and I injected him with Depomedrol, and he was partially responsive to that. So then we um, upped the ante, um, as we do with all patients with um, rheumatoid arthritis. They all get a sequence of, um, of treatment. The treatment goes DMARDs, then uh, uh, goes uh, non-steroidals, then DMARDs, then biologics. It's a relatively straightforward kind of situation. And the DMARDs that work best um, uh, in, uh, in all age groups are methotrexate first, and then probably sulfazalazine and leflunamide second and third. Um, hydroxychloroquine, which is used a lot for lupus, doesn't work for JIA and doesn't work for uh, adult RA um, to any extent. So it's not used very commonly. So anyway, um, we uh, gave him methotrexate. It's usually 10 milligrams per meter squared. The adult dose is somewhere between 10 and 20 milligrams a week. He got some better, um, but not completely. I aspirated and injected him again, no fluid uh, this time. Uh, some improvement, but he's still, um, he's still uh, got a swollen knee, and his sed rate is 33, and a CRP is 35. So what would you do at this point? Anyone blurt it out? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to start him on a biologic. Um, so the biologic would be Embro is the most commonly used. And this is commonly used in JIA and adult RA. Um, I might consult with my infectious disease colleagues to reassure myself and the family that, it, that um, treatment with ceftriaxone is not indicated. But, um, but by and large, I would treat him with a, with a biologic because you can't uh, have a swollen knee like this. Um, indefinitely. You will have damage to the knee, um, and you will have that growth uh, discordance as well. So that's where he's headed. Here's another oligo, um, a 13-year-old male with nine months of bilateral knee pain, um, fever to 100, um, no tick bite or rash, but recent dental work. Okay, This is a kid I saw yesterday, actually. <laughs> um, and um, he's ANA negative, rheumatoid factor negative, Lyme negative. He's got a sed rate and a CRP that are elevated. He's HLA B27 positive. So that makes him, as a Caucasian, at risk for a spondyloarthropathy. The, um, but he had no back disease. His Schober's, which is my, our test for lumbar uh, flexion, was normal. He had no GI or skin issues. By that, I mean nothing to suggest inflammatory bowel disease or psoriatic arthritis. Um, and he got some improvement on a non-steroidal diclofenac. Um, because, um, because of his age and the, you know, and the conceptual framework being a reactive arthritis, we got GC and chlamydia. They were negative. Uh, Lyme, uh, we aspirated his knee. He had 10,000 white blood cells. That's inflammatory. That's not normal. Um, they should have no more than a couple of hundred. Um, and his Lyme PCR from his joint fluid was negative. His culture was negative. I injected him with Kenalog, and he got better. Um, he's, uh, his sed rate was 11, his CRP was 9.5, um, 
which is a substantial improvement. Whether he stays getting better or not is really quite um, quite unpredictable. Um, but um, but we'll watch him and see what happens. Um, and that's a, a kid with a, a juvenile spondyloarthropathy, which could be a reactive arthritis. The problem in his in this his case was that this clearly. Um, was right after some dental surgery. And um, there, there's a very robust literature on infections triggering reactive arthritis in B27 positive individuals. The be best literature is epidemic Shigella and Salmonella. But there's also Campylobacter and a variety of other things. Even Lyme uh, can cause reactive arthritis. But... Um, but his was dental. Um, there's not a lot in the literature about dental, but he had a lot of bleeding um, and uh, he had some uh, periodontal surgery. Um, so I'm thinking that this is probably reactive and I think he'll probably be self-limited, but we'll see. Okay, the next case is a poly. Um, so this is a little girl, an eight-year-old girl with right hip pain. We aspirated her hip and had 85,000 white blood cells. Now, anything over 50,000 is likely to be septic. And she had a single joint, so that makes it even more likely. Um, but she was treated with Keflex. The cultures never grew out. And she developed synovitis of multiple uh, joints in her hands and feet, as well as her left ankle. And surprisingly, I probably wouldn't have gotten this uh, um, test because she's an eight-year-old girl, but someone ordered a rheumatoid factor and it was positive, and then we followed it up with a CCP, and she has the adult form of rheumatoid arthritis at age eight. That's very, very rare. Most of the, most of the literature says you have to be a teenager to get the adult form of rheumatoid arthritis, but maybe she's just precocious. Um, <laughs> she had a brachial vein clot from a pick line. Um, Sarah Chaffee saw her um, and uh, didn't find anything uh, to suggest a hypercoagulable state. She was treated with, uh, initially with uh, steroids and methotrexate and naproxen. And um, this is what her hands look like. This is actually from a, um, a, a, a photo um, site, but, but this is exactly what her hands look like. So you can see all the all the swelling over here at the PIPs and at the MCPs. And by, by age eight, it's pretty easy to examine kids. They're just, you know, they're just small adults by that time um, in terms of their joints. The, the long, younger than eight, they don't, they're really a different species. <laughs> okay. So she was uh, treated with methotrexate and did well. Um, so that's uh, not unusual. Um, so she didn't have to go on a biologic, which is a great relief to everyone. Um, not that they're so bad. It's just that they're injections and, you know, and uh, they have their own risks and they're very, very expensive. But she did well, really well. Okay. So that was, that's uh, my, um, my tour through Posse and Polly. Um, there are other polys that are ANA negative and, and um, rheumatoid factor and CCP negative, um, and they're 
commonly treated the same way as the rheumatoid factor positive ones, that is, non-steroidals and DMARDs than biologics. Um, they do approximately the same as the rheumatoid factor positive ones, so the outlook is no different. Um, the, uh, there is a group of individuals who start out oligo and then have additional joints that are added. They're called extended oligos. Mm -hmm. Extended oligos behave just like polys. So it's actually not that complicated. Um, you either have oligo or you have poly, and, the, and uh, the, the outcome for oligos is usually very good, and the outcome for polys is usually not so good. Okay. Systemics are a whole different ballgame. Um, so this is a classification criteria for systemics. As you know, classification criteria are not diagnostic criteria, but they do outline the salient features of the, of the disorder. They have fever. The fever is a peculiar fever, um, and uh, it's called quotidian. Um, so it differentiates itself from like malaria that's double quotidian, but we don't see much malaria here, um, or at least um, I don't. Um, <laughs> and, um, and they have arthritis, and they usually have a rash, and they usually have some hepatosplenomegaly or lymphadenopathy, and they may, if they're really, really sick, have serositis. Um, but if they present with belly pain, it's often um, serositis. So these are a group of kids that used to be just a nightmare, a complete and utter nightmare. They, they didn't get well. They uh, required enormous doses of steroids. They got steroid side effects almost instantly. And um, they were um, our prototypic uh, um, growth retarded um, and uh, fragile um, uh, child with... Um, with uh, JIA. Now it's a totally different ball game. Um, and, um, and that's why I think it's important to understand to some extent what the, um, what the pathogenesis of this disorder is and why it's a different ball game than it used to be. Um, you know, if you go to Camp DH, um, uh, if you have um, the time to to go with us. It's usually the third week in August. It's at um, the Aloha camps um, on Lake Maury. Um, I think you'd be very surprised because you'll see a group of 50 kids that don't discernibly have anything wrong with them. There's no assistive aids. They're not in wheelchairs. They're not, they, don't have, they don't have crutches or, or uh, braces or anything like that. They look totally normal. And then you look in the nurse's office and you see the stacks and stacks of drugs that are there <laughs> that are um, responsible for keeping them well. Um, many of the kids are on biologics, Embro and, uh, and, um, some, and Humira and some of the other ones. Um, and all of them pretty much are on uh, DMARDs. And this is the difference between what used to be, and that is we have pictures from when camp started 30 years ago, um, where kids were uh, very disabled, um, to now where kids basically are, look and feel totally normal um, and are doing the rock climbing wall and the ropes course and things of that nature. Um, uh, and so it's really quite 
uh, a remarkable revolution in the care of patients. Probably uh, one of the most um, exciting differences in the outcome of patients in any domain in medicine. So um, I, I encourage you to come up there. And the systemics are, are probably the best example of think how things have turned around, because they it used to be a, a fairly lethal disease, maybe 40% uh, uh, fatality rate. Now it's, it's essentially never fatal. Um, there are occasional kids that would get an infection, but, very, but by and large not. Um, so this is a 19-month-old female. This is, this is an illustration of how sick these kids can be. Um, I actually spoke with this child um, yesterday, uh, well, her parents. Um, so this, is, this does start a long time ago, though. This is start, starts when I got here about, uh, so this is about eight years old. Um, so she was hospitalized in Savannah, Georgia, because her father was in the military. She had high fevers and rash. Obviously, we weren't seeing her at that time. She had lymphadenopathy, joint pain, and she had an extensive workup, uh, primarily because she was pancytopenic. Um, and that workup included a bone marrow aspirate and lymph node biopsy, and they never came to a diagnosis. Um, I don't think they had a rheumatologist on staff. Um, but she did, uh, she was so thrombocytopenic, she got platelet transfusions. Um, her sed rate at that time was uh, 112. Her ferritin was greater than 1,000. And she had a macular um, rash with Kebner phenomenon. I'm going to show you pictures of that because it's very characteristic when you see it, but you often don't see it. Um, she had arthritis of um, both, uh, both ankles and one elbow. She wouldn't bear weight. She got naproxen and then Orapred, and she was started on methotrexate here because the family moved back up here. Um, her counts were sort of low. This is not uh, typical uh, systemic. Systemics have white counts in the 20 to 30 range. Um, they're anemic. Um, they often have thrombocytosis, um, but they are um, hypoalbuminemic, so that, that does fit. Um, her polyarthritis worsened. She was, um, uh, her rheumatologist at that time was Leslie Abramson. Um, I don't remember. If you remember her, um, she um, uh, came down um, once a month, I think, or once every two weeks from UVM, and uh, then she um, she went back there and didn't come down. Um, and uh, um, now she's at UVM part time. Um, anyway, she tried to get her embryo, um, but the uh, insurance companies, as they usually do, balked, um, and um, and. Uh, and uh, during that period of time where they were trying to get it, her hemoglobin dropped to 6.9. And, um, and Leslie uh, uh, went on, there's a chat line for um, Pede's room. Um, and uh, they suggested that she start her on Anakinra. Anakinra is um, commercially known as Kinneret. It's a, a biologic agent which is the um, human equivalent of the IL-1 receptor antagonist. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a minute, a um, few minutes, um, and gave it to her, and she had dramatic improvement. Unfortunately, she sort of 
um, required a lot of it, um, and we bumped it up to four milligrams per kilogram per day, and she still had episodes of MAS, um, which is what um, that, uh, those cytopenias were all due to. Um, and then eventually, when it became available, she was one of the first kids to get canakinumab from us, um, and uh, after three months on canakinumab, her uh, pancytopenia resolved, and she's been asymptomatic. Uh, two days ago, she had a, f a febrile illness, and they thought she was having a flare of her MAS, but her, but her labs are really quite normal, and she's doing well now. Um, she tapered off her steroids. She's doing great. Um, she uh, participates in school and, and athletics, and she's doing fine. Um, so this is the rash. The rash is kind of a very subtle rash. Um, it often is present in some relationship to the fever, often on the downside of the fever, sometimes in the, on the upside, but most on the downside. Sometimes you can bring it out by giving the kid a, a bath, and then after you, um, you know, towel them off, then you see the rash. Um, but um, it's pretty subtle, and in dark-skinned kids, it's really subtle. Okay, this is the Kebner phenomenon, so every scratching. So the, it's not very pruritic, but it's enough pruritic that they scratch, and that's the Kebner phenomenon. Okay, and this is the fever. So the fever is this quotidian thing where late in the afternoon or early in the evening they have a fever spike, and they're very irritable and very unhappy, and when the fever goes down, they're okay. Um, you can blunt it with non-steroidals or steroids, um, and then the pattern goes away. Um, but this pattern is, if you see this in a kid, um, it's so characteristic of systemic uh, JIA that um, you should probably um, uh, be fairly confident about that. And um, I want you to keep this in mind um, because of the periodicity. The periodicity is so characteristic of this um, fever pattern but why it's period, uh, periodic is very unclear. There's a lot of things in medicine that are periodic, as you know, you know, um, uh, circadian rhythms and menstrual cycles and so on and so forth. And most of them have an explanation. Some of them have an explanation that we don't know anything about. But, um, but um, this is one that we don't know the explanation, but it's periodic. Um, and they are... Um, and, and this disorder is a disorder of largely IL-1 and, and IL-6. And this is sort of the clue to the pathogenesis of this disease. Those cytokines are different cytokines that you see in adult rheumatoid arthritis for the most part. For the most part, um, IL-1 is a, is a cytokine that is limited to JIA and some other conditions, but not, but not adult rheumatoid arthritis. IL-6 spans both of them, and that's sort of a, an interesting um, relationship between the two. So blockers of IL-6 can be used in both adult and uh, pediatric uh, disease where IL-1 blockade is pretty much limited to, to systemic JIA. Okay. So 
one of the hallmarks of systemic JI is this macrophage activation syndrome. Macrophage activation syndrome is a, is a potentially lethal manifestation of JIA. It also occurs in, rarely in uh, lupus or dermatomyositis. And basically, it's a cytokine storm phenomenon. Um, but in, but uh, the manifestations you see are relative pancytopenia. And you don't see the hemophagocytosis in the, um, in the blood smear. You occasionally see it on a bone marrow. And these kids often do get bone marrow because there's a question of whether they have leukemia. Um, and that's, a, that's a, um, a common differential between systemic JIA um, and other diseases that cause this kind of uh, systemic um, disorder. And in fact, um, many... Uh, patients with uh, JIA are, are, uh, do get bone marrowed because of the question of leukemia. And there's a uh, saying in, in, uh, in uh, pediatric rheumatology that you're, that you're, never, you're not a full-fledged pediatric rheumatologist until you've missed leukemia, um, which I haven't done. So I guess I'm not full-fledged yet. Um, but many, many um, rheumatologists really want um, bone marrows on many of the kids because it's so common to, to um, be a uh, masquerade. Um, in any case, they get this hemophagocytosis phenomenon, which is, um, re releases a lot of, um, of uh, cytokines um, because the macrophages are so activated, they're actually eating red blood cells, and that's hemophagocytosis. And in fact, um, this, the work from Penn when I was there by Ed Behrens um, suggested that, um, that low-level MAS is present in most patients with active systemic JIA. So you shouldn't think of it as a rare consequence of the disease, but it's pretty much present almost all the time in very active disease. Um, of course, uh, MAS itself is a whole field, and, I, uh, and we could talk about that for a whole hour because there are a variety of different genetic defects that lead to MAS. There are some uh, viral infections like EBV and CMV that result in uh, MAS, so you know, it's, it itself is, uh, is sort of a very complicated business. So this is the hemophagocytosis. That's a macrophage eating a lot of red blood cells. And, um, and not behaving well at all. <laughs> okay, so this, I mean, it's a very complicated pathogenic uh, syndrome, but the bottom line is what I want you to see over here, and that is the IL-1 and IL-6, which is what comes out of it. Um, TNF plays a bit of a role, it plays a bigger role in adult rheumatoid arthritis, um, and it plays a less of a role in systemic. Some systemics are controlled with uh, drugs like Embrel, but most of them, um, it would be wiser to go immediately to the blockade of IL-1. Um, the blockade of IL-1 was um, uh, was thought to be the the um, sort of the uh, key to controlling rheumatoid arthritis when uh, Anakinra was first produced. Uh, people thought that IL-1 was the predominant cytokine. It turns out to, that they were right, but only for a subset of the juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, that is, the systemic ones. And so it turns out to be not a very good drug for adult rheumatoid arthritis. But the way the body works is that 
when you put out a lot of IL-1, you have a downregulation uh, phenomenon called uh, the receptor antagonist, which is a soluble factor that just soaks up all the excess IL-1. And that is um, how uh, you downregulate these inflammatory um, uh, reactions. And so what uh, Anakinra is, is a uh, bio bioengineered um, uh, uh, duplicate of IL-1 uh, receptor antagonist, and so you're just flooding the person with receptor antagonist, so it, it just soaks up all the IL-1. It's, it it's not immunogenic because it's exactly what the human sequence is, so it's a very useful drug. The problem with Anakinra is it's gone in 20 hours, and so you have to give it a, by a shot every day, um, and that's, most kids don't like that. Um, and um, not only that, it costs a fortune. Um, you know, thousands of dollars a month. Um, so there are two other um, uh, longer-acting versions of this, um, different kind of concept. Uh, one is uh, Rolanicept and the other is Canakinumab. These are both antibodies to IL-1, and they hang around for weeks or even months, um, as uh, antibodies tend to do, um, and they are much better tolerated. So canakinumab is given monthly um, to kids with systemic JIA, and it works uh, like magic. Okay. So because of the periodicity, um, I think you could, um, and the IL-1 dependence, I think you could make a connection in your mind to the auto-inflammatory diseases. These are... These are a group of diseases that are increasing at the rate of several um, a, a year. Um, there are now over two dozen of them. And uh, it's such a complicated area that um, uh, Dr. Wright and Dr. Palumbo and I try to talk about it when we have kids with periodic fevers and we have a little group meeting um, and actually give out a questionnaire to the parents that have kids with recurrent uh, fevers. Periodic fever syndromes have a similarity to systemic JIA, and I'm going to uh, give you a, a quick tour of that. I'm not going to go into all the periodic fever syndromes, nor am I going to talk about all the auto-inflammatory diseases, which are a bigger group, um, because it's way too much um, for this lecture. But I am going to highlight it with um, at least one case. So. The ones that you probably are likely to see are familial Mediterranean fever, that one, the top one. And you might um, see uh, some patients with traps, and, and you are f likely to see a patient with Pafapa. I'm not going to talk about Pafapa. We have no idea what the pathogenic mechanism <laughs> is. Um, but uh, I will talk about FMF, because that was the first periodic fever ever um, understood, and it's understood and the understanding of, of FMF led to an entire field of immunology. Um, and uh, the person who discovered it, Dan Kastner, the mechanism, uh, is uh, heads of one of the institutes at NIH. Anyway, so this is another list of uh, periodic fever syndromes and auto-inflammatory diseases. You can, it's just there to show you that it's a long list. Okay, so this is a 10-year-old female um, with fever, right knee pain, swollen lymph nodes in the cervical region, blotchy, itchy rash, and a history of cold-induced urticaria. Um, and Dr. Shaker saw her and thought, 
probably muckle wells. Cold-induced urticaria plus fever, that's a good scenario for muckle wells. It's one of the cryopyrin-associated periodic fevers. But she didn't have that. Um, and um, there were some hints that something else was going on. She had some abdominal pain and some ankle pain with erythema. And um, she didn't get any better with prednisone. Um, and we sent a periodic fever panel. And surprisingly, she had a defect in the MEFV gene, which is the gene that codes for, uh, period for uh, FMF. She's heterozygous, so in theory, she shouldn't manifest anything because heterozygous kids um, shouldn't have any manifestations of the disease. It's autosomal recessive. But that turns out to be not true. Um, so in the periodic fever syndromes, the heterozygous do have um, less virulent forms of the disease. Okay. She did well on colchicine and then developed and then got poison ivy. Um, and her poison ivy surprisingly didn't get better. It never got better. She was up to 16 milligrams TID of medrol. Um, for a 10 year old kid, that's a lot. Um, and uh, she got no response. She got a skin biopsy. The skin biopsy wasn't really uh, suggestive of either uh, poison ivy or um, uh, the rash of FMF, but then we doubled her colchicine. She got better and tapered her off of steroids. So it was probably an FMF rash. Okay. So this is a, a condition that uh, you have fever for two to three days, rash, abdominal pain, um, and some arthritis. And it's due to this MEFV gene um, uh, defect. And interestingly, um, it also results in excessive amounts of IL-1, just like systemic. Okay, So it can be treated with canakinumab, but it's conventionally treated with colchicine. Um, colchicine has been around for FMF forever and ever, um, and it was the last, as far as I know, single-authored uh, um, uh, publication in the New England Journal of Medicine in the 1970s. Uh, a guy named Steve Goldring described how colchicine helps FMF. He didn't describe why, he just said it does work. Um, and uh, it's been known um, actually before then, but he, he, he actually did the study. Um, and it's also a very useful drug for something that you would never, ever think was related to FMF, and that's gout. Okay. So that's, that's been the mystery of why, what is the relationship between FMF and gout, because they both respond to colchicine. Colchicine does, is not very helpful for almost anything else. And there is a relationship. Okay, so this is FMF. We talked a little bit about it. That's typical for the arthritis. It's sort of like a very periarticular uh, inflammatory disease, but they get all kinds of other manifestations. A lot of serositis um, and uh, some rash. Um, and this is pictures of the arthritis. And that's actually somewhat similar to what this little girl had. Okay, so what's the deal? So the, the um, defect is in a, uh, a molecule called cryopyrin. It's in one of the 
uh, domains of cryopyrin. And cryopyrin is part of this multi-enzyme, multi-protein enzyme complex whose job it is, is to convert pro-IL-1 to IL-1. Okay, it's a multi, it's many, many, many proteins that come together in what's called the inflammasome. And if you're defective in cryopyrin, you have, you're defective in the um, down-regulatory aspect of um, the inflammasome, so it's constantly active and it produces a lot of IL-1. Now your question is, why does colchicine help? And the answer is not known. It's, it probably prevents the multi-enzyme complex from actually aggregating and becoming a functional unit. But it's not quite yet known. Um, but it, did, it does indicate um, that there's a whole separate form of immunity um, that is now called innate immunity um, that uh, that occupies a more primitive um, response than what's conventionally considered the pathogenesis of autoimmune diseases. Those are diseases that are um, associated with autoantibodies. So the innate immune system is somewhat more primitive and actually uh, is active um, as, a, as a defense mechanism before your adaptive immunity gets involved. And cytokines and chemokines and complement uh, uh, occupy a sort of intermediate between the two. So innate immunity um, is the sort of overall conceptual framework for which auto-inflammatory diseases, and those are those associated with JIA, and um, the periodic fevers um, occupy. And they're all part of this innate immune system, and they're not autoimmune. They're autoinflammatory. They're very different. And um, why, it's, why it's a theory of everything is sort of illustrated here. Okay. Down at the bottom, you have this caspase 1 activation, and that's, um, and that's what uh, cleaves pro-IL-1 to IL-1 and secretes both IL-1 and IL-6. And that's why those are so important in JIA. But around the, the, this um, putative cell are a variety of different stimuli, and they form the stimulus to engender an inflammatory response and activate the inflammasome. And amongst them are things that you would not consider related to JIA in all likelihood. So, for example, lupus. Lupus is the prototypic autoimmune disease, right? It's got a lot of autoantibodies. But actually, the UV radiation, which is a typical trigger for lupus, acti actively activates the inflammasome. So does double-stranded DNA, which is another uh, mechanism for activating lupus, the double-stranded DNA antibodies that you see in patients with lupus are reacting against systemic um, generation of double-stranded DNA. They also activate the inflammasome. And the current 
feeling about lupus is that while it's an autoimmune disease with autoantibodies, probably the defect is in the innate immune system through the TLR um, receptors. And that's a whole topic that requires a, a whole lecture in itself. But also these other diseases that we talked about, gout and chondrocalcinosis, which is gout, pseudogout, they also uh, activate the inflammasome, and they're the ones that, the, and they're the ones that are inhibited by colchicine, and so the inflammasome is particularly sensitive to colchicine in terms of the aggregation of all the different subunits. So colchicine can be used to prevent auto-inflammatory diseases from. Um, from becoming active, and it's used um, to prophylax patients with FMF and also with gout, and that's the relationship between them. And lastly, um, just because um, this is pediatrics and you don't see a lot of atherosclerosis, I just wanted to mention that atherosclerosis is probably an inflammatory disease. The current Conventional wisdom in cardiology is that it's an inflammatory disease and that you can monitor the progression of atherosclerosis by looking at CRP, the inflammatory marker. And the reason it is is because the cholesterol crystals also activate the inflammasome. And so even though you might think that systemic JIA is a very narrowly a conceptually narrow field that doesn't have much application to anything else. It really has applications to everything. And that's the theory of everything. So thank you. <laughs> Questions? Yeah, it's any time before the epiphyses close. Once the epiphyses close, you won't get any leg length discrepancy. So maybe young teenage girls are okay from then on. Um, but most of the kids with oligo are younger than that. They're between two and eight. So they're definitely at risk for that. Dan, you, you mentioned Lyme disease. Could you just comment on the current state of um, reliability and sensitivity of Lyme testing? Great, uh, great question. You know, I'm not the best person to answer that question, um, but um, uh, there, there are people in the audience that are, <laughs> that might be able to help you um, Peter? <laughs> yeah, I, it is hard. Uh, <laughs> we believe and we operate our practice and care of patients based on the result of the serology as though it was indeed a gospel kind of uh, truth. I think it's hard in, in both ways. I don't think there are many cases of Lyme disease that don't have a serologic response that fits the criteria for it. I think that some of the 
patients where you just get an IgM response and say in two bands and theoretically it's regarded as a positive test and an indication of early Lyme disease. That to me is the shakiest, the most difficult uh, single criteria for making a diagnosis of Lyme disease. There is no question that we see collectively a tremendous amount of, of Lyme disease and certainly in practice it seems we don't we get only a small sampling of it. Um, here it's expanding northward, um, and its manifestation, I guess, of global warming is certainly a movement of, of ticks and deer and mice into this area. I, I think you have to rely on it and base a practice on the results of the serology pending pending some new diagnostic advance. The PCR on joint fluid is useful. It's not a test that we would use for other manifestations of Lyme disease. And the clinical diagnosis in the very early stage of Lyme disease is, is really distinctive enough so, so that I think that is a basis for treatment and sometimes even for prophylaxis if you have in an area with a lot of disease. It's a very difficult disease to treat. No, I just hate Lyme disease. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I, when I moved here seven years ago, I didn't see very much of it, and it's just weekly in our outpatient practice now that we have some question about Lyme disease. It's just so prevalent now in a way that it, it wasn't even seven to ten years ago. So. But I do have a question for you, Dr. Albert. I'm curious, I'm interested in adolescent medicine and the transition of these kids who, as you noted, used to die with some regularity with systemic JIA, and now they go to camp and they look great at camp. What happens to them as they transition out of our pediatric system into adult care? Um, what's their long-term health implications or, or even their uh, socioeconomic implications? Do these kids get to college? Do they have jobs? Can they? What does their young adulthood look like? Yeah, I think that you, you point out a very important aspect of transition of care of patients with rheumatic disease in general. It's been a sore point in rheumatology for a long, long time, and there are many different studies that suggest that it's done very poorly. Um, and my suggestion is to have people trained in both pediatric and adult medicine so that they can do both and transition the kids. Um, but the systemics, my experience, and there's no long-term um, uh, outcome data on systemics in the biologic era, so there's just none. I think they actually get better. Um, so we've been able to taper people off of these meds. Whatever tr triggered this, I have no idea. Um, and so I, my outlook for kids with systemic, if they're treated early, is very, very good. Well, it's so complex.